Welcome to the Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Cow, and this is my co-host, Rebecca Davis. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Lawrence. So today we're listening to Robert Picardo's To Boldly Ask episode. It seems like this episode is the perfect example of what makes To Boldly Ask different from, say, any other typical convention appearance. Definitely. Being able to hear Robert talk about wanting originally to go into medicine, uh, and then he goes to being on stage in the New York theater scene to eventually becoming this iconic science fiction character in The Doctor in Star Trek Voyager is really a full circle moment. And now he has his deep involvement in the Planetary Society, uh, so it helps give insight into his original interest into science. This episode is full of great stories from Picardo's entire career and even his life outside of Star Trek. And I am 100% sure that there are a few things in this interview that no one has heard before. Yeah, it really defines um, the host Ian Spelling's goal of asking questions so we can get those stories that no one has ever heard before. And so, yeah, I think it's a perfect to boldly ask episode. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of my podcast, To Boldly Ask. As always, our goal here at The Companion and To Boldly Ask is to ask our guests questions they've either never been asked before or at the very least have rarely ever been asked, and then to dig even just a little bit deeper. Today, I am pleased to welcome the man who almost played Neelix, Mr. Bob Picardo. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on To Boldly Ask. How are you? Um, great. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Ian, because you, you, you ask interesting questions, even if I have heard them before. So the, the prospect of getting ones that I've never got before is uh, thrilling. Well, here's one I know I've never asked you. What is a day in the life of Bob Picardo like? You wake up. Do you have a game plan? Do you have a schedule? Do you have an assistant who plots everything for you? Does your wife tell you what to do? What's a day in the life of Bob Picardo? <laughs> a little of all those things. Um, well, uh, I've often said to young actors that you've got to stay disciplined because if you're not working and you're sitting around waiting for that next job and the phone to ring, you've got to structure your life as much as possible. So I try to take my own advice. Um, my, uh, my wife and I take a good, brisk, early morning walk. How early depends on our work schedules. She is, uh, she's a physician, uh, a semi-retired. Um, and uh, so we walk. Um, then I do, do about 65 minutes on the elliptical every day, the elliptical machine. Mm -hmm. And I often catch up on my, uh, uh, you know, on my binging of television shows. I recently finished Mayor of Eastwood, which is probably two years old. Fabulous. Now I'm watching Severance just so that I can go to a cocktail party and talk with everyone else. And right. uh, um, and then I do uh, push-ups, sit-ups, and then I think about what meals I want to eat that day. And I cook. I make fresh bread or pizza, so I love to cook. That's a hobby. And uh, and of course, uh, we audition on our iPhones now all the time. So mm -hmm. sometimes I have a couple of auditions to pop out. It's not that exciting a life, but uh, I would say that I'm a terrific cook. So I look forward to eating whatever I'm making for dinner. How about that? And and what's your specialty? Well, you know, since I'm a little kid, 11, I, I make uh, my own pizza, make my own dough, all different kinds of pizzas. Hey, Robert Picardo, pizza genius here. Look at this. Look at this fresh sauce. Look at that crust. It's perfect. I, I infected uh, Mr. Delancey with the pizza bug. 
Um, uh, my house, when I lived in Pasadena, had a, a wood-fired pizza oven, so he enjoyed that. He came over and, and did all the research and then built a better pizza oven in his backyard. So now when I want to make wood-fired pizza, I have to go to his house to do it because I now live in, uh, uh, in a different... Uh, I, I moved about three years ago. don't have a pizza oven of my own. I'm in a fire area. Can't have one. So, uh, so I'm going to Delansky's very soon to make pizza, as a matter of fact. If your audience is interested, I'll be with him within a week, I believe. Um, slices for again. everybody, right? Slices, you're going to send a slice to everybody watching this, I right? <laughs> I'm going to FedEx. It's going to be, yeah, the shipping is going to kill It's going to be an expensive proposition. <laughs> Talk to me about the Planetary Society. How did you come upon it? And in general, Bob, what fascinates you about what is out there? All right, good question. Um, I set out on my life journey with the expectation that I would be a scientist. I loved life science in particular, took advanced biology in high school, went off to Yale to be a biology major and to be pre-med and to become a doctor. That was my life goal. Obviously, I, you know, I, I took the easier route of becoming a television doctor instead. Uh, I don't know why, I guess because I, you don't have to carry malpractice insurance. Although I know a number of actors who should have to carry malpractice insurance. <laughs> but all of that aside, I, um, that was my original goal, was to be a scientist. So I've always loved science, particularly, particularly uh, life science. So um, now, how did I get involved with the Planetary Society? Uh, during Voyager's um, initial run, uh, the two surviving founders of the Planetary Society, by that time, Carl Sagan sadly had passed away from cancer, but his two colleagues um, who both worked at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and Caltech, uh, Lewis Friedman and Bruce Murray reached out to me just to be part of a fundraiser. I believe the first event I did for them was a birthday of Ray Bradbury, the great Ray Bradbury. I was going to, uh, to meet him, which I did. And we all read from Martian Chronicles and they assembled quite an amazing list of people. In addition to John Reese davies there was uh, Miss John Delancey from our franchise, uh, Tim Russ, myself, and um, Charlton Heston wow. was quite a Tony group. And we performed at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is uh, the State Theater of California and a theater I've worked at four times as an actor. I love it. Uh, we performed on stage and read primarily from Martian Chronicles. And the event went great. And then these two uh, gentlemen who co-founded the society, uh, Bruce Murray and, and um, Louis Friedman, called me and double teamed me on the phone saying, we'd like you to join our advisory council. I said, well, I'm not a scientist, what could I do? And basically they wanted me to bring the message of the Planetary Society. If you love space exploration, we are a tremendous resource to you. You're part of a community of people around the world who love space exploration. Mm -hmm. They wanted me basically to, be, to reach out to the science fiction fan community with that message. If you love science, if you love science fiction, you really love science. Why don't you find out what's really going on instead of just, you know, Star Trek's imaginary 24th century space exploration, you know, stay on top of what's happening now. You'll find that exciting too. So I've been working with them since the late nineties, about four or five years ago, I was invited to join the executive board, quite an honor. Um, our CEO is presently Bill Nye, the science guy. The Planetary Society is a global movement of people just like you dedicated to exploring planets. Finding life on other worlds. And 
defending Earth from incoming asteroid impacts. Oh, that was close. We have amazing people on that board. Heidi Hamill, who is on the James Webb Space Telescope team and about as high up as you can get in, uh, in James Webb. Uh, so we, we would get, we get exciting up-to-dates about what's happening firsthand from some of the extraordinary colleagues on the board. And, uh, and it's, been, it's been a wonderful way to bring me back to science, my original passion in life. I've come full circle. As we get closer and closer to discovering evidence of life off our planet, even if it's only microbial life or evidence of prior microbial life on, um, on Mars or on the moon of Jupiter, that's just, as, as my CEO and friend Bill Nye says, that will change every, everyone's concept of themselves. The way we think about ourselves will change the moment we find life off our planet. Um, and uh, it's going to be a long time, I think, before we have evidence of uh, intelligent life, but that will be the next big milestone. But I really believe in my lifetime, we're going to find evidence of life or prior life within our solar system um, you know, between now and, and uh, when I'm on the wrong side of the grass, and that will be a very exciting moment. Do you think we'll like what we say? Yeah, I mean, I think that at, 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 you have to like, you have to, if you have to like new discovery. I mean, that's what, that's the core of what Star Trek's about, right? Star Trek, you know, the whole theme of Star Trek is just to explore and learn and understand your, uh, the human place in the cosmos. It's not about, you know, trolling for cheaper car phone I'm sorry, uh, cell phone batteries by, you know, we're not, we're not out there. Our, our, our goal is supposedly not to go out there and mine space for, you know, for economic benefit. It's, it's just to, to learn and understand more. That's the core principle of Star Trek. So yeah, I think whatever we learn, that's that fundamental, that changes the way we think about ourselves uh, has got to be, has got to be great, no matter what it is. Let's switch gears a little bit. Some actors can't stand to watch themselves on screen. Some actors don't love it, but do it in order either to do publicity uh, the way they need to, or in order to learn from their performances what to do or not to do next time. So for you, where do you fall on that scale? Can you watch yourself? And what do you learn from it if you do? I fall in the second category. I learn from watching myself on screen. And if I make myself laugh, I mean, if, it's, if there's humor in the scene and I make myself laugh, then that is, I have to say, that delights me if I can make myself laugh because I know what I did. Now, with something like Voyager, which is years and years ago, and I've forgotten a particular moment in, in one of the however many hours we did, 170-something, if I rewatch a show and I make myself laugh, uh, as I said, that, that, that is always, I'm, I'm my toughest audience. But I do, uh, you know, you do learn by doing, especially someone like me who came, I never studied film acting. I was a theater actor. Uh, I had quite a lot of success as a young actor in theater. I was in David Mamet's first produced play in New York when it was off-off Broadway, Sexual Perversity in Chicago. I made my Broadway debut at age 23 in a lead role play that ran four years. It's the fourth longest running non-musical in Broadway history called Gemini. I played the lead character in Gemini. 
Year after that, I played Jack Lemon's son, the second lead to the great Mr. Lemon in a play called Tribute when I was 24. And that doing that play again brought me to Los Angeles, but I knew nothing about film acting. I had been in one Kojak episode, I think, in New York. So you learn it's a different technique. It's a parallel art form. You know, working on stage, working on film are different. I remember The Sound Man, the first TV miniseries I did. It was Mark Harmon's first television movie, I think. It was called The Dream Merchants, a Harold Robbins potboiler. And I played the angry son. And, and, uh, uh, and my father was a movie based on the, the Warner Brothers, I guess. And my father was the founder of the studio. And I was his, you know, angry son who didn't, who thought my father loved, the, you know, this outsider Mark Harmon's character more than me, whatever the heck it was. I just remember the sound man saying, you don't have to talk that loud. The, the microphone's right here. <laughs> so uh, in any case, uh, I, I, do, uh, I do watch myself. I'm a fairly tough critic, but I, 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 I don't, um, I know other actors refuse to watch their own work. I kind of admire them, um, but that ain't me. There you go. All right, now you were a working actor before Voyager. You've been a working actor since Voyager, but we always hear that Star Trek is a game changer for an actor. How did it change the game for you? Well, it does make you an international face, an international celebrity of sorts to a, to a very specific community around the world. And uh, in that respect, you, you now have, your, your name will be known in all of the various foreign countries that uh, Star Trek plays in. And also you'll have a signature role in your life, no matter what else you do. I mean, look at Patrick Stewart, what a glorious career, but he's known right. primarily as, you know, as Captain Picard. So it's, you're going to have a signature role. You're going to become an internationally known actor to an extent to that dedicated fan base. But it is going to, uh, the downside of that is that you are, you're associated with genre. You're always seen by the audience in basically some kind of various ski pajamas that, right we all accept it as a future Star Trek uniform, Starfleet uniform. And uh, so that, you know, and, and that in some areas of the business may mark you or may limit your career. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a give and take thing. I think the best thing is to have had other credits. Um, I was on a very well-respected and prestigious show called China Beach, only ran four seasons. Um, and because it was about Vietnam, it was really popular. It was popular in the, in the U.S. and in our ally countries, that, that, uh, particularly Australia and, and um, Great Britain to an extent. But mostly, it really was, I think, after the U.S., Australia was probably its second most popular. In any case, I, I had had that experience. And... Uh, and that was my brief leading man career. I wore a hairpiece in China Beach, which I don't recommend. If you're doing a series with a helicopter, you should think seriously about wearing a hairpiece. <laughs> but, but I got to kiss the girls, Dana Delaney and all that. It was all great. And when I was cast in Voyager, I remember Rick Berman, our exec, um, I said, do you want me, um, you know, I work in a hairpiece because you knew me from China Beach and really had enjoyed my work in that. Um, I, I work in, in and out of a hairpiece. And he said, oh, we want you just the way you are. We've had a great deal of success with bald men. Right. 
We're going to talk so. more about bald in a moment. But on Voyager, and here's a question I know I never asked you. On Voyager, who was the scene partner who brought the most out of you? Ah, uh, that's really great. Uh, that's a great question. Probably Kate, I have to admit. Kate is a perfectionist. Kate is a natural leader, not, not just this, in that role, but that's the way she is. Kate is a very, and I mean this in the best sense of the world, a take charge personality. And you have to run to keep up with her. Um, we're great friends. I love working with her. I love sitting and talking. There's no better dinner conversationalist than Kate Mulgrew. You know, we, we really have a, a, a deep and lasting friendship, uh, which is, you know, which is great. These symptoms are hardly surprising, Captain. You work absurdly long hours under constant stress, eating on the run without sufficient exercise or rest. Your body is crying out for mercy. It certainly is right now. Having said that, I loved also, in addition to working with Kate, I loved working with Jerry Ryan um, because our relationship was so interesting. Jerry is a delightful person, has a great sense of humor about the effect she has on um, all of us <laughs> with her, with her uh, beauty. Um, and uh, so I loved working with Jerry and I loved working, I love my, my character's relationship with Tom Paris because it sort of flip-flopped between being sort of uh, giving him a hard time and being a little contemptuous of his skills as a medical assistant in sickbay. But then also when the chips were down, he would always give me very good advice. But the truth is I, I really looked forward when I had a scene with Robert Beltran um, because we didn't, we didn't have that many scenes together. Robert's a wonderful actor. I've seen him on stage play Hamlet. You know, I loved, I, I also loved having scenes with the, with the members of the cast that I didn't have scenes with often. So true. And Garrett, um, Garrett and I had some great episodes together. I'm sort of, I play second fiddle to him in, um, I think it's timeless, our 100th episode uh, where he really, you know, really got to show his acting chops because he had to age up and go back in time to save, you know, our destroyed ship. Warning, warp core breach in 30 seconds. It's got its own power source. Would it be enough? It's our only chance. Glad you could join us, Doc. It's been a pleasure. Warning, warp core breach in 15 seconds. Anyway, it was, uh, I, I, what I'm saying is we had a really wonderful acting company. And I loved when I had, and uh, again, Roxanne as a uh, Bellana Torres, I didn't, ha I didn't have a lot of scenes with her. If you look over the scope of the entire series, um, but I loved working with her. So I, I really, I, I, if, but I have to say that because of the nature of the relationship and because of who Kate is, Kate is the number one answer to your question is who brought, the, who brought my best work out of me. And then you did something unusual on the show, especially for the actors on the show, which was you went to the writer's room and you were able to discuss with them, A, their plans for the doctor and B, you pitched story ideas and stories, period. Take me through that. What, what gave you the balls to go in and do that? And how surprised were you that they actually heeded some of your suggestions? I, I mean, on China Beach, which was my prior experience, I, I had a special relationship I had a special relationship with the showrunner um john sacred young who passed away sadly just about a year and a half ago wonderful we we also a great lifelong friend of mine 
but he would let me, uh, I had pitched enough jokes for that character that they, I had special permission <laughs> that, I, that I could shoot an alternate line. Once I had done what was in the script, especially since we we're often working at two or three in the morning on China Beach, and no, no writer wants to get called at three in the morning and say, hey, can I say this? Um, but so I had had a good experience on that show. And of course, John Wells, who went on to enormous success, he was um, one, of our, uh, one of our showrunners on China Beach. That was one of his first big jobs. So I got a lot of lines in China Beach, usually joke lines that uh, in the show. Um, so that was, I'd had that experience where I found that if you give a, a constructive suggestion to a writer, um, you know, it's hard to write 22, 24 episodes, 25 episodes a year. It's really in the way you do it, I think, whether an actor is his suggestions are welcome or whether they're obnoxious. Um, so I would literally stop by um, the office. I would call on the phone. The first meeting I had was with um, with uh, Jerry Taylor and the late and wonderful Michael Piller. Um, I had an idea for a bee, a runner, a bee story for the doctor that the doctor is so convinced that his patients act like babies. This is an early, this is season two. I think the episode, um, I can't remember. It was a, basically a Chakotay episode. But the B story was uh, the doctor, in order to show his patients how they should behave when they're ill, he, his program is changed uh, so that he has the um, symptoms of having a cold. And he's going to show how great a patient he is. And then of course, he's a terrible patient. He's like a big child. It's an old, you know, physician heal thyself. It's, a, it's an old gag, um, but I envisioned it as basically a three, three scene runner. And I pitched it to them. And I remember Jerry and Michael both were like, you, you're not looking to become a writer. They were very careful. They didn't want to establish giving credit to any, uh, any of the right. cast. Star Trek is also, has been generous enough with, with allowing actors to direct. I don't think they wanted to open that particular can of worms in the writing room as well. But I said, no, no, I just am looking for things that I think would be fun for the character to play. So that was that, they took that idea and made it much better and put it in the show. That was sort of the beginning. Um, and, but often I would call just with line suggestions, jokes that I thought were funny. And uh, I would call, I get an advanced copy of the script and call and say, what if I said this here? And they, it was like taken down often by the writer's assistant. And then if they liked the idea, this, the, the lines showed up in the script. Later, when the rewrite pages came out, before we started shooting that episode, you would see a little asterisk and there was my joke if they liked it. If they didn't like it, it didn't show up. I would say the most significant suggestion that I made in retrospect was at the end of uh, season three when Kess left this show um, and they were adding this new character. I, I said to uh, Brandon Braga, I'm very concerned because Kess has been the emotional sounding board for the doctor. She's been his confidant and ostensibly he's teaching her to be a medical assistant, but she's really, she's really um, helping teach him about his growing sense of entitlement as a, as a member of the crew, even though he's an artificial intelligence. So if she's gone, I said, I don't want to go back to just being a, you know, a, a, a what do you call it? A, a windbag and a joke 
because I have no one to reveal that other side of the character to anymore. And Brandon said, well, we have a new character, Seven of Nine, coming. Think about how you could relate to her. Well, of course, the first time I saw Jerry, as I said, everyone knows how they'd love to relate to her on film, but it wasn't appropriate because of our age difference and all that um, to be, uh, you know, certain kinds of a uh, certain kind of relationship didn't seem appropriate, but I thought a kind of a student teacher gag taking the relationship I had with Kess and flipping it so that the doctor has the ego to think he's a better teacher of how Seven should reclaim her humanity than a real human would be. Mm -hmm. Seemed to have a lot of comic possibility. And I specifically suggested we could have role-playing exercises in which I would teach her appropriate behavior under different social situations. And of course that culminated. I mean, the first time we did it, uh, she was the doctor and I was the patient. And I was teaching her that interaction. But that culminated after four years or three years with someone to watch over me, where the, you know, our My Fair Lady episode where Henry Higgins is, is teaching his Borg Liza Doolittle uh, how to go on a date and of course falls in love with her, which was a very sweet episode. Dating is a poor means of interaction. There's far more efficiency in the way you and I communicate. We say what we mean simply and directly. You and I do have a rapport, but we're colleagues. We're not pursuing romance. No. I'm certain you'll be able to master these basic skills in short order. My first date was certainly short. Was that a joke? Lesson six, beguiling banter. Now you're getting the hang of it. That turned out to be the best suggestion. And again, it's not for a specific storyline. It was for a character relationship and gave me, you know, four years of wonderful scenes um, with Jerry's character. Now, you happen to be a distinguished looking bald man. When you started losing your hair, Bob, did you panic? Did you worry about finding work? How did you react? Well, I was on Broadway playing a juvenile, playing a 21 year old. And I was 23 and my hair was really starting to go. And, and, and I think the, the Tom Lehrer joke is it's like, it's like being a Christian scientist with appendicitis. You know, I'm, 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 I was making my living playing, a, playing juveniles and suddenly I was going to age quickly. I did, I remember I, I freaked out all the people in the Jack Lemmon show. I said, oh, I'm losing my hair. I think I might. So I remember the first day of rehearsal, everybody came up and was like looking at my hair going, you look fine to us. They didn't know how much I had had. For those who follow me on Twitter about a year, a year and a half ago, I tweeted a little video of me at age 19 in the Bernstein mass. And I have this Afro that is too big to fit in frame here. It was huge. So I had a lot of hair. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be day. And there was day to follow the night. And it was good for our back. So even when I started losing it, there was so much of it, it took a while to really be detectable. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was uh, 24, 25, you could really see it starting to go. But when I finished my last juvenile role, the play with Jack Lemmon in California at age 25, 
it pretty much jumped ship from 25 to 27. I lost, I went from being a, a juvenile to a, uh, a young character actor quickly. But then in my, you know, when I started to work occasionally in hair pieces, I did a series for Showtime a billion years ago called Steam Bath, based on the Bruce J. Friedman play, where when you die, you go to this weird kind of steam room and God is a, is a bath attendant, a steam bath attendant, played by Jose <laughs> Perez. In any case, it was a crazy show. I wore a toupee and a towel. I had to sign a nudity clause, but my hair, my head was covered. Um, anyway, uh, it was, you know, I, I did a few leading man roles culminating uh, in China Beach with a, with a hairpiece. And I still wear wigs occasionally for different roles in some of the Joe Dante movies. Mm -hmm. As the cowboy, I'm wigged as uh, in Gremlins 2. The great thing about a Joe Dante movie is they let me walk off with the wig. So if you watch, if you guys uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, you'll see the Gremlins 2 wig is now on a character known as Alfonso, the world's oldest gigolo and most offensive man. When a man and a woman come together in ecstatic union, they have intuitively grasped what I can teach you in my new masterclass, how to be a nexus of desire. Now, I wore a toupee for about two years. It was like a third person in our relationship. Uh, we called it Jack. There was a bad Danny DeVito movie called Jack the Bear. We called uh -huh. my toupee Jack the Hair. Did you have a name for your toupee? Did you have a relationship with it? Because literally, if it didn't look good on me, I, I punched a, wall, a hole in the wall in my yeah. door in Hoboken because it didn't look good one day. <laughs> my I mean, wife will vouch for me. Well, you're probably like me. You didn't feel authentic with it on. The good right. news, because I'm an actor, I, if I wore it for a role, that was fine. And for example, if I had to go to the Emmys when I was, um, when China Beach was nominated, I would wear the hairpiece to go to the Emmys because I thought I had to look like the guy in the show. But I never was comfortable doing it. And the joke of it was that I was, you're not hiding anything from your audience. I mean. When I was, when I had a full head of hair at 10 p.m. on ABC on Wednesday night at, on China Beach, the night before, Tuesday at 8 p.m., I was bald on The Wonder Years. So I right. was playing a character supporting role on the number one comedy show. And then the very next night, I had this beautiful head of hair and was kissing the girls on China Beach. So, you know, I mean, when they profiled me on, on uh, TV Guide, playing these two different roles you're not hot you know america knows if they if they care that you're losing your hair no it's not a big deal to the rest of right. the world it's only a big deal to a guy in his 20s who thinks oh my god this is the first permanent change in my appearance that will be with me until i die you know what i mean i will i will now never have i will never have hair again and and in your 20s you think that's a very sad thing i have you know, uh, and now if my hair grew back, it would be just a major imposition on my life. <laughs> Pretty much the same. All right, now I found a funny, silly little film that you did called Chad and the Alien Toupee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, 200 feet. Now, Chad Ford government agent.
How did this come together? <laughs> it's um, so funny. It's silly. I cracked up watching it. Uh, the director, a fellow named um, Carrie Anderson, very nice. Uh, I, I, I don't know how I met him. He had directed some films. I think he wrote about films. He was pr uh, maybe a, you know, um, a critic. But he had this idea and it just sounded funny. I mean, the character was great. He was supposed to be, it was a, obviously a satire of James Bond. And I had one scene where I'm in bed with a smoking jacket surrounded by all these beautiful girls in their 90s. It's just, it was just a lark. I did it for fun. And Tim is very funny in it. You know, it was just one of those little, I've, I've done a number of short films through my career. I don't know where they are. Years ago, I was in a movie with um, uh, Wendy Shaw played my wife. The gag was, it was during the swinging 70s. John Larroquette is in it as the bartender. My wife and I go to a, what's basically a swing club where you're supposed to exchange partners. I remember I had a scene in bed with Tawny Katane. I don't know whatever happened to that movie. I mean, there was no, it wasn't really dirty. The joke was that my wife doesn't want to go to the swingers club. And of course the man does want to go and the wife has a great time <laughs> and the guy doesn't. Uh, that, was the, that was the guy, that was the, the, and I can't remember what it was called, but I mean, I've done these movies throughout my career and sometimes they disappear. Right. I, and sometimes- It catches your they, eye and it makes you laugh, right? They show up, and sometimes yeah, so who And knows? sometimes they're around for posterity. Yeah. All right, mm -hmm. so Kate, Jerry, Robbie, and uh, Robert Beltran have all returned to Trek uh, in some way, shape, or form from your Voyager days. How open are you to returning if the opportunity came? Would you be willing? Um, of course I would be willing. I mean, it's, as I said, it's your signature role. I still, I feel like the doctor is still with me. For, the, for those of your audience who don't know this, I, I have a, one of the things I do on my YouTube channel is called Technobabble Alfresco, where I'll take some classic Voyager doctor speech and I'll deliver it in a beautiful setting, wherever the heck I am in the world. And I recently just went to Greece and Turkey. So I have to tell you, I got some really good ones coming up. I was in the temple of Asclepius, Asclepius, Asclepius. And I did uh, the a scene where the doctors takes the Hippocratic oath again at the end of Darkling. So, um, so I, I have been reviewing those speeches. I don't always rewatch the episode. I just, I'll just think of a, an episode and I'll look and I'll remember a certain scene, and then I then I have to watch that scene, and I'll rememorize it. And sometimes I do something that's fairly challenging, even. Technobabble Alfresco, here we go. What you need is some editorial skill in your self-expression. Between impulse and action, there is a realm of good taste begging for your acquaintance. The Doctor talking to Seven in one, season four, episode 25. I hope I didn't hurt her feelings. So I feel like I, I still live with the character and I still enjoy the character. However, um, obviously uh, holograms, it's the data issue too. We're not supposed mm -hmm. to change physically, right? And of course, uh, you know, um, as a human, I didn't get that memo. If you're, a, <laughs> as a hologram, I was not supposed to, my appearance is not supposed to age. And as a human, it's inevitable. So, and you have to do that thing with the, you either play a different character. I could easily play Doc Zimmerman again because Doc Zimmerman is in the same timeline as certain of the Star Trek series. Um, 
or you could simply do the, uh, you know, uh, to me, it's a funny idea. What I f- would find very funny is to have the doctor and Zimmerman working together. L- let's put it this way. All of your audience, think of this, whatever age you are, okay, let's say you're a 40-year-old person watching. Imagine your 18-year-old self or your 16-year-old self working side by side with you during the day on some very critical or important mission. Your job was to work with your 17-year-old self at age 40. Wouldn't that annoy the hell out of you? Well, I think there are a lot of comic possibilities if you can age down the doctor um, to have to do to do a scene with his now that there's a giant uh, a large age gap between the doctor who's 41 or 42 and his um, you know and his late 60s uh, creator. In any case, the answer is yes. It, it's fun to revisit the character. I'm really happy that uh, Kate is now talking openly about it now that they've established the precedent with uh, you know Star Trek Picard that there's a there's a there's a passion in the audience out there to see the legacy actors again um, in new stories mixed with, you know, with, with um, wonderful younger new actors. So, I mean, it, it's uh, certainly something I'm open to and the character lives on inside me. So. And how fulfilling has it been to see Voyager kind of get a second wind among fans at the time? Some people loved it. Some people didn't. And now I think in retrospect, people appreciate it even more. Can I assume that you've noticed that and uh, oh, yeah. agree with me? I do. I do agree with you. And I think, um, ironically, I think uh, Star Trek um, Strange New Worlds, which I really like. I mean, I, I, I've, I've sampled, I haven't watched all of them, probably watched the most Picard. But yes, it is gratifying to feel that Voyager is really getting... Um, uh, a second look um, by a lot of fans who um, either maybe were too young the first time we ran or, or not born yet. But really, I think it's even people who maybe weren't crazy about it in its original run are now enjoying it much, much more. And uh, I, I also think that the, the popularity out of the gate of Star Trek Strange New Worlds is, uh, is going to help Voyager as well, because that that is a throwback to the original series and self-contained episodes, not long story arcs, the way Voyager was. So I, I think that uh, I think that the growing nostalgia for our series um, will continue, as I said, especially because um, of the new series. It seems that the that uh, that Strange New Worlds has kind of the instant hit status among, uh, among fans. Totally agree. Great. All right, let's do the speed round, which is one of my favorite parts. I'm going to give All you right. fast questions. You can give me fast answers. And if you want to go into an explanation of your answer, you can, but, but no need. Okay. What's your favorite color? Blue. What's your drink of choice? Uh, bourbon. Bourbon. How long is a piece of string? How long is a piece of string? Mm-hmm. As long as it needs to be. There you go. All right, guys named Robert can go by Robert, Robbie, Bob, Rob. How did you settle on Bob? Uh, my, my mom called me Bobby. Um, and also, I was the last person uh, of the Voyager cast to work. So Robbie and Robert had already been taken. So 
I was Bob whether I wanted to be or not. I've never been a Rob. But weren't you always a Bob before even before Star Trek? Yes, you're you're right. I I was to my friends, to family and friends. I was my family called me Bobby. And my friends always called me Bob. So, yes, I was always Bob. So it wasn't. But as I said, I I had no choice in the matter. But I got the I, I got the version of my name I would have selected, even if I were the first of the three Roberts to work on the show. There you go. All right, you can choose any real moment in history to drop in and on visit. Which do you choose and why? Oh, gosh. Um, I would think, uh, I would, uh, it would have to be um, to meet uh, Jesus, to be at one of the, uh, one of the sermons, you know, uh, to be at the Sermon on the Mount, to be at one of the great, you know, moments of, I guess this is on my mind because I just went to Greece. I went to, uh, you know, I went, I went to Patmos where, um, where um, St. John wrote the book of Revelation. So, you know, I would think it would have to be from, it would be a moment in biblical times and to meet, uh, to meet Christ would have been, yeah, I mean, you can't do better than that. There you go. What's still on your bucket list? Ah, uh, gosh, um, a lot of things. Uh, travel, uh, almost all of my bucket list things do not concern acting. They <laughs> concern going and visiting uh, different places in the world. Um, uh, and there are, and there are lots of them, you know, even different places in Eastern Europe. Uh, my wife and I are really enjoying, I know it's a thing that makes you sound like an old person, but cruises are pretty great, you know, where you wake up in a different beautiful place, uh, just went from Istanbul to various places in Greece. Um, anyway, so I, uh, I'm not giving you, but there are a lot of things on my butt. Too many to, to list. <laughs> there you go. What's your guiltiest of guilty pleasures? Ooh, uh, probably Italian pork sausage because I don't eat pork anymore for moral reasons. But once in a while, you have a slip. Pigs are apparently a, a pig. If you give a teach a pig how to use a joystick, they operate it uh, better than a seven-year-old human. So I think you just can't eat pigs anymore, guys. Fair enough. All right, let's do a little show and tell. I, I understand you have a couple of items you want to show us. Oh, yeah. What do you got? Okay. Well, first of all, um, I recently moved. So this I discovered. I tweeted it. It's a, a wonderful picture. Is it in focus or not? How about oh, there that? you go. Right there. There we go. Right all there. right. Um, uh, Dee and I spent two different occasions together. I met him at a convention in Sacramento, but this is when we were on stage together at, uh, in, uh, at the... 25th anniversary of Star Trek. Uh, I guess it was, no, I'm sorry, would it have been the 30th anniversary of Star Trek? Right, 1998 in Huntsville, Alabama. He and I were on stage together for an hour and that was a great, uh, great experience. Uh, he was so playful. I, I said to him the first time I met him, you know, my character pays homage to your character all the time. And he goes, oh, you mean you steal from me? And I said, <laughs> pretty much. What am I supposed to do? Lead a revolt with the gang from Sandrine's? Conjure up holograms of Nathan Hale and Che Guevara? I'm a doctor, not a counterinsurgent. Um, he had a great sense of humor, real gentleman. So I, I love that picture. I do have, um, uh, this is, of course, my plush doll. Now, I don't know if you can focus on this. Can you see into the box? Not really. Right um, there, right there. You had it, you had it. Okay. 
um, you see that the character has like a comb over. Can you see that wait. or not? It's coming in and out of focus. You had it and wait. All right. Okay. Nope. In any case, um, in my plush dolls, um, uh, and, I, and this is because when they photograph us to send the dimensions of, of our, you know, they, when you get cast in a Star Trek show, you are photographed from every angle, full body, you know, all around. They scan you um, so that they can send your, all that data to wherever they make the dolls, the action figures. But they don't scan the top of your head. So they didn't know. It, I guess it looked like I had peach fuzz on the top of my head. So when the doll came out, I have this large brown streak. I'm not going to tell you what we call it. Um, this brown streak <laughs> on my head that doesn't really exist. It looks like I'm wearing 1970s headphones, you know, when they had the giant band yep. across the top. So, uh, so yes, um, I remember. And, and I gave um, my, the, the weirdest thing about being an actor, when you have young children and you're cast in a Star Trek show and suddenly there are dolls of you and Christmas ornaments, to see your children playing with your doll is an unforgettably strange experience. I remember... My daughter Gina, when my action figure came out, my daughter Gina was about five and she had a big Barbie car. And so Barbie would be, would be riding around the house in the car and then riding shotgun with Barbie was a little bald guy in a, in a space suit. And I was known as Daddy the Doll and Daddy the Doll would get, you know, would, would ride around with his hot young blonde. It was ridiculous. But in any case, uh, so I, and, and then another thing, I remember when a fan, um, Wait, does she still have Daddy the doll? Um, oh, does she still have it? I don't know. I have. We'd have to ask her. <laughs> and then, of course, somebody gave me this, right? Yep. You never forget. You never your forget first your doctor. first doctor. I understand. There's actually a, another science fiction franchise with a character called the Doctor. Yeah, with oh, a yeah. phone booth or some weird thing. Yes. Very upsetting. Very upsetting. I hate the way that you know they ripped me off, even though they did it. And the sh and the show is named after the person. Right. And that's not fair either. Why was why was I not why was our show not called Star Trek: The Doctor? Think about it. Um, in any case, no. I um, the reason my character never got a name is my fault on the show, because you know we were all set to premiere. They made the opening credits where it said Doc Zimmerman, played by Robert Picardo, and I went to Rick Berman and said, "Why you know we're doing all these episodes of May I choose a name?" may I be entitled to pick my own name, but we're telling the audience from day one what my name is going to be. I said, I, and he said, you're right. And they changed it right before we premiered to the doctor. And in that moment, I unwittingly ripped off 50 years of, of British science fiction television. I didn't even know. I, I, I had no idea that, right. you know, and that's probably one of the reasons they were reticent to do it. But, but I've learned a lot since then. But I have one of the original press kits that does say Robert Picardo is, as Dr. Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. Well, all of the all of the original Bible for the show, all of the first season scripts, it's Doc Zimmerman, my character. Whenever I have a line, it says Doc Zimmerman says this, and I never became. I feel bad for Herman Zimmerman that the character, the tribute character, never happened. But I'm really glad we did that because it was a good running gag. I mean, the whole notion of an indecisive computer program is kind of funny, right? There's you right. you think of, um, and 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 that. Because back then we were all had home computers in the 90s, but everybody had software and hardware issues and could never figure out the mystery of why your computer wasn't working. That's what the doctor was. He was your walking, walking problem, you know, right. the, 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 the uh, piece of technology that did what it wanted to do.
Joe has a real flair for romantic gestures. Joe? I, I decided I couldn't get married without a name. It took you 33 years to come up with Joe? And then we have a couple of photos to show you. Uh, you mentioned Jack Lemon before. I think we have that great photo. Look at that. That's, that's the Jack and I in his dressing room uh, on Broadway. I'm 24 years old. Just so if, if I could wish an experience for a young actor to work with someone like Jack Lemon at that age, someone who had who had been a movie star for 25 years at that point and was so gracious and humble and kind to me. Um, you know, it was just, it was a, a experience that I treasure my whole life. So, and can we bring up that other photo? Oh, the other one, this is a cute story. There I am with my, that's a slab of marble with my face carved in it. It's really my favorite fan interaction story. Early on in our run, it was like 97 or whatever, I went to, I believe it was Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a fan came up to the autograph table and gave me uh, a tombstone about this big in marble, that thick. You could see the back of it. And it said, it says uh, Robert Picardo as, I guess, the doctor. I can't even read what it says on the back. But when someone gives you a tombstone, it seems like a mixed message. I, I said, well, I'm sorry, do you think Star Trek is the death of my career? Or do you think that? And he goes, no, no, I just really like your, he said, I carved these for a living and I just wanted to give you something. Well, I was touched and I, but bringing a tombstone home, when you put it in your carry-on bag, your carry-on bag is really heavy. So when they open it, you know, when they open it at security and you're carrying your own tombstone, it's a difficult thing to explain. You know, I, just, I, had, I had a right. funny feeling about this flight. Um, I just, you know, you got to be prepared. It just seems weird when, and, and that was, I remember that whole story of getting it, how heavy it was, getting it home, but then it was great. It sat in the garden for many years in Pasadena. Now, sadly, it's in storage at the moment, but it will come back. And my and who knows? Maybe someday we'll actually bury me outside, and and it will it'll be it'll be the actual what, tombstone. What it was meant to be. Uh, who there knows? you go. It says it actually know. says Doc Zimmerman on it. It says Robert Picardo is Doc Zimmerman. Doc yep. Zimmerman. That's right. So it was very early on. He probably right. he may have carved that. You know, when he was reading about the show, and I was because I you know in the initial cast announcement, it was Robert Picardo as as you said in the press kit as Doc Zimmerman. So it all of that that decision to change it it just shows you how last minute it was. Uh, the right. Rick Berman even gave, or the the visual effects department gave me a copy of my frame of that digital frame in the opening credits where it said Doc Doc Zimmerman played by Robert Picardo. So I even have that somewhere framed. Um, but yes, that whole that whole last minute change uh, you can blame on me. Here you go. And our last question, Bob, is there a charity that you support that you want to give a shout out to or draw attention to? If so, well, please go yes, for it. Of course. Well, first of all, it's a nonprofit, the Planetary Society. I urge all of your viewers, if you've never visited our website, www.planetary.org, please do so. We're a tremendous resource of, of information about everything related to space exploration. We have a brand new thing. If you have a young uh, if you have a, a child or a niece, a nephew, a cousin who's young and interested in astronomy, we have a brand new thing called Planetary Academy. We are just launching it. 
and you get four mailings a year. It's very inexpensive. And you get, uh, you, you get all these to-do things for young kids to learn about space exploration and astronomy um, with these, with these um, four times a year mailings that you'll get of, of activities and, and things to do. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I love my association. It's now pushing what? It's more than 25 years with the Planetary Society. Um, I'm great friends with our CEO, Bill Nye. In fact, I officiated his wedding about three months ago, which was, uh, which was quite a, a wonderful experience. Um, and also uh, during all of my early personal appearances, I uh, would sell these self-made CDs uh, and, and uh, uh, I raised money for the, um, for the Pediatric AIDS Foundation, which has always been um, you know, uh, a, a charity that's close, close to my heart. So, um, and you know, and the great thing about Star Trek fans is there, if you, if you shine a light on something that's important to you, they, they have a look at it. Um, you know, Kate is, a, is a, a spokesperson for the Alzheimer's Foundation because of, you know, her loss of her one of her parents mom, um, to that. So, um, so I think it's great that if you, if something is important to you as a, a you know, a, as a Star Trek actor, that Star Trek fans really um, pay attention to that because they get to know us beyond, you know, they get to know, they're interested in knowing the person behind the character. And, and so if something's important to you, they, they check it out. And that's, uh, I, I think, one of the best things about my experience with Star Trek fandom has been how, how loyal they are and how they seem to really care about you as an individual. As an, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a feeling of being taken care of. I remember my mom, I lost my mom very early in Voyager's run. She passed away at age 84, but she, she came to one Star Trek convention. And, and she, at the end of it, she had this feeling of like, I don't know, I don't understand what they, what this means or what they, why they're so affectionate toward you, but I feel like you're being taken care of. She said something like that. She got the wow. whole thing early on before I got it. So, you know. That's awesome. <laughs> Good deal. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being with us uh, on To Boldly Ask. I hope I asked you a few questions that you either hadn't been asked you before. You did. Or I, I understood you were going to ask me, yeah, why are bald men so, you know, attractive? I thought we were going to ask, but I guess it's just self-evident if you're watching the two of us right now. We that need was what I was thinking. Okay. I, I think it, yes. Well, good deal. Thank you <laughs> so much. Thank you. It's always Be a well. pleasure with you, Ian. Thank you very you got much. It. All right. You EMH. Got it. Out. <laughs>